Hey, you came back. I can't believe it, but I'm really glad to see you. Well, I mean, I can't see you, but I'm really glad to hear you. No, actually, I can't hear you either. I'm really glad you're hearing me, but that feels a little conceited. Oh, well, I'm just glad you're here. Hey, there we go. Found it. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming. This episode of the podcast started, really started way before the podcast even existed. So I work with this guy named Ed. He's a good friend of mine. We've worked together for a really long time. And Ed always talks about his kids because he's proud of them, obviously. They're very cool people. And so his youngest is named Alana. And I started hearing about Alana when she was still in high school because she was a high-performing student and athlete and just kind of an all-around cool person. And Ed would just tell me stories about what she's up to and things like that. And when she went to college, she started studying stuff that I was interested in, so Ed would fill me in about that. And I basically felt like I got to know this person completely without ever meeting her, just through her dad. And over the years... She got into some more and more advanced stuff and got to where Ed couldn't really answer my questions anymore because he isn't a neuroscientist and neither am I. So we basically needed Alana to be there to fill me in because I just have a lot of curiosity about that stuff. So Ed would always say, when when Alana comes down the next time to visit, we'll get you guys together and let you pick her brain a little bit. And I was really looking forward to that. And it, years went by, and we just kept talking about this, and she just kept going further in school. And um, I, I didn't really ever put too much thought to it because I just figured when it happens, it'll happen. If it doesn't, it doesn't, and, you know, we'll all be okay either way. And then, uh, so completely unrelated, last fall I just got a hankering for some artistic expression, and I thought, I'm going to start a podcast. And if you know me, you know I do lots of fantasizing about cool things to do and ways to spend my time and money and usually I just talk about it and and, you know nothing ever materializes and I go on to the next thing but this for some reason felt different and I just thought like I'm actually going to do this I'm going to start a podcast and just about that time I Ed told me hey Alana's coming down in a couple weeks and she'll be here for a couple weeks and we we should get you guys together and let you talk and it just felt very serendipitous, like it was meant to be. And I thought, okay, that means I got to get my shit together and I got to get my podcast up and running before she leaves so I can actually get this recorded. I wanted to, it just seemed like too perfect of an opportunity to waste. Uh, So I got, you know, I got the ball rolling. I got my studio put together. It really threw it together. Got my equipment that I needed and just, I got everything I, I could together in time to get an interview recorded. I didn't really know how to do a podcast. I still don't. I'm working on it. But at this point, I really didn't. I was using brand new stuff I had never used before, brand new software. And I had never met Alana before. And she's a very distinguished, intelligent person. And I'll be honest, I was kind of nervous. You can hear that in the interview. On top of the nerves, um, I was using brand new stuff that I didn't fully understand. And the recorder kept shutting off. So Throughout the recording process, the recorder just stopped several times. So I had to figure out how to get that to to continue going. And basically, there were lots of obstacles, but lo and behold, we got that shit done. And we got the interview in the can. And I, you know, it's been 
uh, several weeks now since I recorded it, but it's great. The only problem is that the first few minutes of the interview were lost. I know, I know, I know. How do you do that? But it was brand new equipment, and I, you know, I, I won't make any excuses. There's no excuse. I fucked up, but the fuck up is irreversible. So. The first couple minutes are lost, but we tried really hard to cover whatever was said in that section in other parts of the interview, so you really don't lose much information, and all it really did was make for a little bit of tension in the beginning, and I was embarrassed, but I got over it. Things are good. It's a great conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. But before we get to that conversation, let me give you a little bit of background about our guest, Alana Darcher. She was born in Astoria, Oregon, and raised in Nacelle, Washington. She went through her primary education, K through 10, at Nacelle High School. And then she, through Running Start, went to Clatsop Community College. Through that, she finished her high school with an associate's degree in general studies and with a focus on applied sciences. In 2016, she received her Bachelor's of Science from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, in neuroscience and behavioral biology with a minor in philosophy. Throughout college, she worked as a research assistant for several different groups, mostly with focus on the clinical applications of meditation practices for post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2017, she moved to Munich, Germany, where she began studying for her master's degree in systemic neuroscience at the Ludwig Maximilian University. She was focusing mostly on computational neuroscience and scientific applications of machine learning. She graduated with a master's degree in January of 2020, and now she's working towards her PhD. She's still living in Germany, and she's investigating how humans can quickly update existing memories with new sensory information, and how this occurs both at the single neuron and network level. She's a really cool person, and I am so grateful for her to come on my podcast and just bear with me while I was learning, because it's not easy. So it was really, really cool, and she really didn't have to do that. So that's how much gratitude I have for her for even doing this interview, because she's a legitimate academic, and I'm just a kid playing in my fort. (laughs) So if you're listening to this, thank you, Alana, for coming on. You're a really great person. Thanks again for coming. I hope that overall the experience of being on my show was a good one, and I really hope you come back and do another interview the next time you're here in the States. I really think that without that extra motivation of knowing I had to get your interview done before you went back to Germany, without that extra motivation, this podcast may have never actually happened. It could have just been added to the pile of, you know, dreams that I just like to think about and never actually do anything with. So thank you. It really means a lot to me that you came in here and talked to me. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with the lovely, the brilliant Alana Darcher. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Here we go again. Um, my guest today is Alana Darcher, and um, unfortunately, we already covered the first 25 minutes of the interview, and I didn't record it because I'm an idiot. But She's still here, so we're going to ask her the questions again. Yeah, all good. Sorry, that, that recording doesn't exist. We're starting yeah. over. Um, so, Alana, tell me about yourself. Um, you grew up in the area, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Nacelle High School. Um, I guess let's just cover yeah, what let's we covered before. Yeah. 
So, hi, my name is Alana Dercher. I'm from Nacelle, Washington, uh, born in Astoria, raised Nacelle, and now currently live in Cologne, Germany, working on my PhD in computational neuroscience. Where, what university are you at now? Uh, I'm at a the University of Bonn. Bonn so okay. that's a city that's uh, just a few miles south of Cologne. Okay. How how does the university system differ uh, in across the pond from over here? Yeah, it's it's pretty different. It's um, how about that price difference? Free. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess so. On the PhD level, uh, it's kind of the same because PhDs are usually on a stipend from the university. Mm-hmm. So and there's no tuition, um, and the yeah so. Uh, I got my master's there in Munich, Germany, and uh, one of the reasons I went over there initially was because I knew I wanted to get a master's degree and didn't want to go further in the debt for it. Yeah. Um, and Wise move. Yeah. And they had just re- Germany had just recently started j- this policy of essentially treating American students uh, as if they are EU students, so they don't get charged tuition. Mm. Um but even so, I think it would still be like two thousand euros per semester. That's so not still, too bad. yeah, not at all. It's still yeah. remarkably cheaper. But um, I mean, the other part too was just like the university that I went to for my master's had a great program mm-hmm. and allowed me to uh, kind of do a little bit of a field change, also. What was the field change? Uh, so my bachelor's degree was in more behavioral side of things, and my experience was on the clinical side of things, and when I graduated, I knew, when I graduated from my bachelor's, I knew I wanted to go into more computational mm-hmm. and more, um, uh, I guess, like, mathematical, sorry, I have to sneeze. It's right. <coughs> Bless you. Uh, thank you. Um, Yes, yeah, so when I graduated, I wanted I knew I wanted to go into more computational side of things, mm-hmm. which usually com- people come in from a from physics or mathematics or computer science, mm-hmm. and so I needed to can get a education in other areas. Gotcha. And and is that because you just didn't want to do clinical work, or is that you're just more drawn to the more concrete side of things? Um, the questions that you can ask with computational neuroscience were more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And um, they have definite answers. No, um... Sometimes? It's just different answers. You can just answer things... You you ask different questions and you can get different answers. I think concreteness uh, maybe isn't so much... They're both concrete. Like, you can get concrete answers in clinical neuroscience in terms of, like, we know, like, okay, we did this investigation on a molecular level and now we're using that information to investigate whether or not this drug has X and Y effect in this clinical population. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's definitely potential to get concrete answers, but it's concrete answers to different questions. Gotcha. And so in computational neuroscience, it's more, is information processing in this part of the brain happening how we think it's happening? Uh-huh. And how does that affect uh, some other phenomenon of information processing in a different part of the brain and those kinds of questions? Okay. Um, I, I will come back to it, but because um, I want to get into a little bit more of your history first. But sure. Neuralink, 
Are, um, are you look? Have you heard of that? And the Elon Musk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that implant he's putting in people's heads. Um, yeah. Yeah, that seems pretty. I mean, sounds very science fictiony, but definitely really seems kind of uh, like it's just inevitable at some point it, the phone is going to go into your head like <laughs> yeah um, I think that's also what he wants like during the question and answer portion of his demo with the with the pigs mm-hmm. um they had like a twitter session where people could ask questions and there's one person who was like can I play video games with this and Elon Musk was just like oh yeah like, yeah. yeah and it's like well okay well not right now but yeah so that's definitely I think any yeah. commercial pre- like application you can think of it's going to be they're going to use it for everything it's going to be very big i bet i mean i don't know i think that there's like this whole swath of ethical concerns oh yeah that like just totally change once you're bringing something from an animal to a human Mm -hmm. and especially with neurological implants if anybody can do it it's elon musk it's true but i don't i think like this is a instance where people should be really skeptical about adopting a new piece of technology because there's one, there's like a difference with, so there's this like principle in um, open source technology or like information security that if something is smart, then it is hackable. Mm -hmm. So smartphones, smart houses, smart watches, smart cars, you're just opening, like adding more entry points, more entry points. Exactly. Like the attack surface increases and so I don't know, I would personally not want to invite yeah. that into my personal biology. Yeah. So, and also like, what does it mean? Like, so you have Neuralink 1.0 that gets implanted in somebody. Then do, is Elon Musk beholden to continue like software patches on that every time? So like, what does that look like to software? Like, did, there's so many other questions of yeah. like, we have some of these things. We don't even have all of these issues sorted out with non-implanting technology. So what does it look like to try to move that into biologically implanted technology? Um, yeah, there's definitely some roadblocks. And really, there should be probably even more. Because um, it, that seems like a technology that should develop very slowly. Like yeah, if they yeah. rush, rush into it because of, because of the potential and all the things you could do with it, um, there's going to be some unintended consequences for sure and i would assume that they would grandfather in a lot of policy from deep brain stimulation or other because there are existing neurological implants that people get Mm -hmm. and biological implants like pacemakers and those kinds of things um but to extend that to like a voluntary surgery on the level of like a neurological implant is probably not going to happen in the u.s (laughs) no not for a while yeah well, I think the, the original intentions are for, like, curing diseases. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is a really brilliant business plan because uh, you get your foot in the door. Yeah, and I then... mean, also from a research side, this is, like, it. I don't particularly, like, endorse Elon Musk as a person and, like, some of the decisions that he's made. I uh-huh. think he, like, really fills in the slot of, like, evil billionaire. He's more really, like, like a Tony, cartoon Tony Stark than he's yeah. a billionaire. He's a, he's a superhero. I, I don't know. I th- he he could, shot we'll, rockets we'll, over L.A. and, like, didn't yeah. let anybody know. Like, I th- he just takes a lot of... dug a trent or dug a tunnel under L.A. And then abandoned it, right? I don't even know. I haven't been paying <laughs> attention. But, yeah, he does what the fuck he wants. <laughs> That's yeah. what he does. Tony uh, Stark, evil billionaire. We, yeah. Time will tell. We'll, yeah. we'll see in ten years. Um, but when he starts putting chips in people's heads, uh, it's going to be some major changes happening on a societal level. Yeah. But I think there's, like... There's something cool about it from the research side of 
Like, yeah, have somebody with a ton of money and a ton of scope and access just throw a bunch of cash at a really interesting problem, like technological problem. That's really a set of problems. Yeah, like, hell yeah. Like, don't, there's, don't let that, if we, if that can happen instead of, like, one university trying to pump a bunch of cash into something Mm -hmm. that, and then have to go through kind of, like, the academic side of things when you can just have somebody like Elon Musk on a whim be like, we're going to embed electrodes in animals remotely uh, and make that a mobile technology. That's awesome. I just, like, okay, can the research side also have access to that? It's kind well, of the dream. Yeah, that'd be cool if it was all open source. Yeah, uh, which he can't do. That's, like, nah. totally antithetical to his prime directive. Yeah, and that really is, like, that exemplifies the capitalism versus socialism question pretty well because he's managed to outcompete the government uh, on space travel. Yeah. Uh, he's made it, <laughs> yeah. Like, he came out of nowhere. His, his company is worth more than all of the legacy automakers, and Tesla is worth more than legacy automakers all combined. Really? And he produces not, that's a not fraction just on of spec, the cars. But that's on stock value. On stock value. Yeah, okay, so... market cap. Okay. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that... It's imaginary. I mean, yeah, it, okay. yeah it's not real, but uh, you can still spend it. Okay, yeah, like, sure. So it's, sure. it's real enough. Yeah. Um, and he produces way fewer cars. It's, yeah. it's all, he's, he's a hype man, yeah, essentially, yeah. for himself. Yeah. And I, I really respect that because it's, it's a scary thing to do. Um, to yeah. try to sell yourself to the world on multiple fronts and yeah. be that successful. I think it kind of, that image of it, he's a really good salesman, but I think when, like, the rubber hits the road, that starts to collapse a bit. Like, so, for instance, with Neuralink, he released, uh, he's kind of done, like, some lip service to the academic community and the academic uh-huh. research community where he, it kind of seemed like he wanted to interface with academic research a bit. So he, they, the Neuralink company released a, paper, like, um, I don't know if it was peer-reviewed, but it was put on one of the, like, The a, white paper or something they, they talk about all the time. Maybe, but he, so traditionally, in, like, with academic papers, and especially on a project as big as Neuralink, you'll have, like, a ton of authors. Um, the most prestigious position is, like, the first author, and that's the person who did the most work on the project, and then it goes sequentially after that. And all it is on that paper is just his name, Elon Musk, and then the Neuralink company. So... Oh. Which is not very academic. No, and it kind of is like, well, there are a bunch of research scientists who work at Neuralink, and it's just kind of shitty to do this lip service but not actually go through with it. Like, he's not giving credit to, like, Elon Musk did not do the majority of the work on this. Yeah. Guaranteed. Just like he didn't actually build the rockets. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but so it's, you know, it's, I don't expect anything else from him, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's just a bit... Like, why do a paper then or something? Yeah. But that's Probably, also... It's most likely business motivated. Definitely. I mean, like, yeah, for sure. Marketing. Yeah. Um, but... Like, we can say we have this academic paper out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was it published? I don't know. It, it was on a um, paper archive, uh, a preprint archive. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a newer thing in academic research where you have these um, university-hosted servers where you can, as a researcher or I think anybody, like, you can just put a paper up there as a preprint oh. as your as a way to, like, almost like a save point for your work. Uh-huh. So, because a lot of times papers can get wrapped up in um, editing processes and reviewing processes, mm-hmm. and it puts a hold on the science because those can take super long to finally, like, you can have the work done and still be waiting months and months to actually release the paper. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, like, the bread and butter of... Uh, 
that's like the points system for academic research is like papers. Yeah, publish or perish. Yes, exactly, yeah. And so preprints are a way to kind of ease the pressure on that. And so I don't know if he got, if they if the Neuralink paper was in, we could super easily look this up, but if it was in a, a peer-reviewed journal, I would suspect not, but it was on a, it was definitely a preprint release. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that, anyway, the... I don't remember what we were talking about, how we got to Elon, but it, he's got a lot going on. It's interesting. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. fun to watch. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah, I'm, the jury's out on whether he's a superhero or an evil genius. Hey, yeah, I don't we'll know see. how much it matters. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Um, so we covered this already, but um, that in the section that we lost. Yeah. The uh, Your time at Emory, um, you worked with some pretty prestigious Names, right? Some very well-known researchers. Um, who whose lab were you in? Um, I was in a few different labs. Uh, the one that I spent the most time in was the lab of Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Mascaro, who runs a group that's looking investigating the clinical applications of different meditative practices. Oh yeah, that, um, that's where I wanted to go. Yeah. You led me right back. Cool. <laughs> um, so meditation as uh, in a clinical approach, like first things like PTSD. Yeah. Uh, did you guys find that it's pretty successful? And It's, so it is, it is successful, but um, kind of like, I don't know, I guess this was in the lost part of the recording, but kind of like with psychedelic studies, um, it's not a, panacea so it's not a Mm cure-all um and her group and most neuroscientists and clinicians studying meditation in general um come from this perspective of okay we these practices like mindfulness meditation or um uh there's a ton of there's many different types um they seem to have these anecdotal effects and they seem to have these kind of um, reliable effects. So they seem like they're worth studying and they're worth giving more credence to. Uh, And so like any kind of therapeutic practice, there's populations that it works for and there's populations that it doesn't work for. Mm -hmm. And there's so much of that is unknown with regards to meditation. Like, is there a dose dependence effect of meditation? Like, is 10 minutes of meditation the same as 20 minutes? Who does it work for? Who There's does probably it a lot do? of variability in that, huh? For sure, yeah. And that, it's, that was where I was gonna, what I was going to ask next is, is the, like, personal differences from individual to individual uh, or uh, even things like definitions, operationally defining things like... Yeah, yeah, that's empathy. a huge... Yeah, is yeah, that that's a, a huge problem. problem. In, that, in, in that field? Yeah, operationalizing is kind of like a key word within... Um, contemplative studies or mm-hmm. meditation studies of... And does that take the magic out of it? Like, uh, is there some, some aspect of meditation that is kind of abstract and you can't really put your finger on? Um, and if you operationally define it, in a, it, like, the components of that, it, does that kind of... Well, it actually, I, that's maybe coming in from, like, a Western perspective that it seems kind of, like, woo, hand-wavy. But, um, so we work... The medi- when, when I'm talking about meditation practices... Specifically, the ones that I worked on um, are secularized versions of um, medi- like mindfulness, not mindfulness, um, compassion-based meditation practices from Tibetan lineages of Buddhism. And so our university 
has this really cool connection to the Tibetan government in exile in northern oh, India. Wow. Yeah, and so we had on oh, the... Shantideva? Is that the 8th century Buddhist who this... Uh, Cognitive-based compassion training was based yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, so... I read that in your paper. <laughs> yeah. Um, you probably know, it's probably fresher in your mind than it is in mine then. But, yeah, so we worked with... Um, yeah, yeah, Lopsang. So, um, yeah, so Lojong is the... Lopsang Negi is one of the um, monks that we worked with in developing, like, operationalizing this. But okay. coming from the Tibetan tradition, like, Tibetan Buddhism is much... In most of Buddhism is much more, like, a philosophical enterprise uh-huh. than a religious enterprise um, in the sense of it's not, it's not so much about worship as it is um, well you get, it's I guess how you define those things kind of breaks it down but well, how do you define those things to me uh, it's much more of like a philosophical structure and it's much more of a um, philosophical endeavor than something that relies on belief so mm-hmm. to speak oh yeah okay so, so into so- a lot of Tibetan Buddhism it's if you come to a conclusion, it's kind of not the point if you just take it in as a belief, as a dogma. Yeah. Like, you really... Part of the practice of some lineages in Tibetan Buddhism are uh, debate. Like, it, a debate is built in. It's built into devotional practice within that because the idea is that if you should be able to come to these conclusions on your own by following these steps. And so reading, like, some of the Buddhist texts is, like just these extremely detailed discussions of how like our concepts about real like something as mundane as a chair break down once you start to investigate them uh-huh. and kind of the interplay between something being and something not being yeah. and that so goes into how, how meditation is defined also how we construct the reality based on yeah. the inputs yeah so they um, Tibetan Buddhists like those lineages already have really rigorously defined uh, meditation practices and like different kinds of meditation practices and those are passed down and so we as a like coming from the western perspective of okay how do we like take this apart and put like make this apply to this thing and put this in this thing um, a lot of those operally um, operationally like structured definitions already exist because those are already built into the practice okay and, yeah so do you think there's any kind of uh, I mean I know there is but Issues with tran- being able to transfer the benefits of, uh, of those thousands of years of practice um, to a Western culture that kind of s- looks down their nose at, at things like that because they see it as kind of woo-woo or, or whatever. Like, I know, like, from a neurological perspective, you can see things happening. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and you can measure brain waves and, like, you can tell yeah, that there's yeah. an effect that's yeah. beyond, uh, you know, wishing for it or, yeah. or feeling it. but. You uh, you can also feel it like you yeah. if you're if you're doing the practice and um, belief plays into that a, a lot yeah. and and the placebo effect has a huge impact on that so to try to bring those concepts over to a group that may not be open to it is is that going to be possible or is that going to be a problem? Um, it is it is kind of a problem. So for example, one of the biggest. Uh, regressors or like one of the biggest um, predictors of effectiveness in the clinical studies that I worked on is like openness basically like the more open you are the more willing you are to give 
meditation practice a chance, the more effect it's going to have. And that's like not a, at all a surprising result. Did you give people that big five personality inventory? Yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah. We give them like a battering of personality and um, dependent, study dependent, uh, other like psychological questionnaires. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like in the initial studies, that was the only intervention that we would do. And then we would have a control group that was just doing some other uh, stress relief like breathing exercise. Um, yeah. Are you, are you a meditator? Um, I do. I. Or I guess I'm sure you could have done it, but do you have a meditation practice that you like lean into? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. Um, it's pretty simple. I just try to do 25, 20 minutes when I wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a particular practice that you follow or do you do your own? I just do, uh, like super basic um uh like it's called shamata or it's um just breath exercise so Uh just focusing on the breath um there's a massive amount of different kinds of meditation practices and that's kind of the most simplest one yeah, um, just that's practicing just, concentration essentially. Yeah, and then so when your attention drifts, you just bring it back to the yep, breath. Exactly. Yeah, um, that's pretty much what I do too. Yeah, I I benefited a lot from it. Um, like, I, it seemed like the first few years that I did it, I started meditating when I was about twenty. Yeah, um, I'm thirty two now, and I I started meditating because I was rowing at the time. And yeah, yeah. I, I was having so much anxiety. Yeah. Uh, around doing 2K tests, which okay. is a 2,000 meter sprint. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's it's the most fucking miserable thing I have ever done. Yeah. And yeah. it's like six and a half minutes if you're fast. Yeah. Um, of misery. Yeah. And so I and I would know these tests were coming because you had to do one to make to get a spot in the boat. Yeah. And so every time they become they would come up uh, the two or three days before the test. I would just be a nervous wreck and it, sure. would, it would mess with my appetite sure. mess with my sleep and just cause me all these problems. Um, all for just like six or seven minutes of pain. Yeah. Um, so I looking for ways to manage that anxiety. I started meditating and kind of fell into it from there. But that's, that's what I do too is the breath, go back to the breath. Um, I've tried all kinds of different ones. Uh, I really there for a while, the, TM, Transcendental mm-hmm. Meditation, really appealed to me, but I think it was kind of because it's almost like a cool kids club. Yeah, like, it's very hot. It's like a yeah. very sexy aspect of... And you have to take, like, go pay somebody to take a class, and they give you your mantra, and it's like, <laughs> there are definitely some marketing ploys that they use that make it appealing. Sure. Uh, yeah. Plus, Jerry Seinfeld does it. Um, they get celebrities, like... Yeah, I don't um, even know anything about it, They actually. have a guru who's like looks like a guru would look he's got okay. the beard and it, it they it, it's cool so i liked the idea of that but i wasn't going to go pay to go have somebody yeah. give me a, a word when i was pretty sure that the word doesn't actually matter it's just it's arbitrary you just got to focus on something that uh you can do without thinking but yeah the meditation's been pretty cool for me the uh clinical application of it though is something that i i don't really know anything about it, it's pretty interesting um so you mentioned studying some of these monks um are these the guys who can like actively manipulate their brain waves those monks so i didn't study it um there's so 
I have never worked w- on a study investigating, I guess, what you would call, like, expert practitioners, hmm. so monks. Um, but there has been a lot of work done on that, mostly out of um, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hmm. So with Richie Davidson, he does a lot of focusing on that aspect of meditation studies. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of like a decision that you make uh, as somebody's researching that, uh, researching meditation, like, okay, are we going to investigate expert practitioners, monks, so people who are have been practicing meditation for many decades? Or, uh, and those are people who can manipulate their yeah. their physiological reactions to things on a very minute level, and it's very cool. And, like um, make one hand 105 degrees and make one hand 90. Oh, I don't know about that. But um, yeah, yeah. I'm, there's, I forget his name, but there's a, a guy who was a monk. He like lived in a cave for 30 years by himself meditating. Um, and he can do some pretty crazy things with, it, with his biology. Or Wim Hof. Uh, you know Wim Hof? Mm-mm. The Iceman? Uh, he, <laughs> he is uh, famous for being able to manipulate his autonomic nervous system okay. uh, through meditation and breath work. Sure. And uh, he's, he's really famous for doing cold plunges because yeah. he does like 30-minute cold plunge in ice water. Yeah. Um, he can manage not to get hypothermia yeah, yeah. By, by managing his breath. Yeah. And um, this is something that we didn't really think was possible until very recently. Uh, there was another, there was a study where they actually took him and several of his um, contemporaries yeah. into a lab, injected them with E. coli. Okay. And then had Who's them, doing this? Who <laughs> got approval to legit, do that? <laughs> l- uh, well, I, I should look it up, but it's a very legit study at a university. Okay. Um, I can't remember where they did it though. <laughs> and they were actually able to ward off infection by, okay. by thought alone. All right. Um, yeah. Which uh, it sounds crazy, and it may be crazy. I, d- I don't know, but um, it, it looked legit to me. Um, yeah, you'll have to check that out because I'd be curious to see if it's, you know. Yeah, I want to know who's doing. <laughs> yeah, right, let's look it up. Yeah. Um, um, but the yes, Wim Hof is his name, and he's he's very charismatic. Mm-hmm. So there's could be some culty, uh, kind of like people get behind him because he's interesting things but i really i i do tend to believe that he's got some kind of trick he i mean somebody can be culty and experienced um that's true those aren't mutually exclusive that's very true <laughs> wim hof e. coli yeah but yeah so on the other side it's the um and those are the studies that i worked on are investigating um what happens with uh beginner level meditators so and then even further than the question differs between using meditation as a some form of treatment or just seeing what happens over time mm-hmm. in uh like a quote-unquote healthy population um with the introduction of like a regular meditation practice voluntary activation of the sympathetic nervous system uh, and attenuation of the innate immune response in humans it was printed. Okay, word. Kind of groundbreaking. The fact that this is the first person that we have documented evidence that could actually kind of go under the hood, manipulate yeah. that stuff. Um, I, I find this that is all su- this really is interesting. super interesting. Yeah. So, have you ever heard of Dr. Joe Dispenza? No. 
Um, he's getting a little into the woo-woo territory. Okay. Um, he, like, you, you could make an argument that he's a pseudoscientist. Okay. Um, but I happen to believe the pseudo-shit he says. Okay. And it is, uh, like... So he, his whole thing is that he... Uh, He's, he was a chiropractor, I think. Yeah. And he got into a bad car accident. He got hit by a car on a bike or something. Yeah. And he was paralyzed, broke his spine, all kinds of injuries. And so he was in the hospital, and uh, he had the option for surgery to get his spine fused mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, be paralyzed forever. Mm-hmm. And he, he opted not to get the surgery, and he just decided to try. Was he a medical to, doctor? No, he was a chiropractor. Oh, okay. Um, so, okay. <laughs> hey, I don't yeah. know. What is it? People like to flip a lot of shit to chiropractors. I've noticed they like they're not real well respected. It's considered a uh, like sub medical practice. Why is that? I'm not really sure. Um, probably because there's not. Uh, I have no idea. Um, I mean, if a podiatrist is a doctor, shouldn't a like, well, they do different things. I think that, like, the core principle of chiropractor is that you can work most ailments out via the skeletal structure. Yeah, which... the guy who invented chiropractic practice was a huckster, I think. Okay. I shouldn't say that on a podcast. I don't know if that's true. I might have made that up. But I think it's true. Um, <laughs> what is a huckster? Is that, like, a snake oil salesman? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um but anyway, Dispenza. So his whole thing, he sold a few books about it. Three books, basically the same thing yeah. each, in each book. So he's making money off of this. So, sure. so already take like, it with a grain of salt. S- yeah. Yeah. Um, but his whole philosophy is that, and he pulls a lot of scientific terms like quantum stuff. Anytime people throw the word quantum in, yeah. then people are listening. They're like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. But I don't know if he actually does. Anyway, um, that we get to... F- we craft our reality based on like the decisions you make and the way you feel about things, and you could take advantage of these inborn systems of placebo and the nocebo. So he's like pulling some the secret. Yes, the, the okay. se- it's like it's like a a, a more detailed version of the secret. Oh, good. Like, that was my com- chief complaint yes. about the secret. Yes. It was not enough details. Um, yeah, I was not open to that stuff at all when The Secret came out. And I was uh, I was in college, and yeah. I, I was, like, completely a, a staunch materialist. Sure. It's so like, if I can't see it, if you can't measure it, I don't really care about it. Yeah. Um, I have changed my tune on that a lot uh, in the last few years just because I, I think it's probably... I have the luxury to do so. I'm not in academia. Word. Uh, you can just... You can be woo-woo in the real world. Um, but, yeah. Uh, he, I don't even know if it's worth getting into, but the idea is that you can uh, create the reality that you want by looking into the future and trying to identify with that version of yourself in the quantum realm. Like, if the, if the, if the multiverse is real, is, is that's how things function, and there's all these non-materialized versions of reality and the one that actually condensed into the the line that we're living in is the one that you're experiencing if you can look towards so really all past if looking into your past memories is past projection looking into your future is future projection you're kind of looking down the line into these 
potential realities. So it's a world of possibility, but it's not real until you're there because all we have is this moment. Um, so this guy says, if you look into those potential realities, like you can pick one that you want to occur and then by adopting the feelings that go along with that state, you're, you're activating these systems in your body and mind that are going to bring about that state. Um, it, it's, it's, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, but, it sounds like a really fun narrative to positive thinking and yeah, small attainable goals. I think that's really what it is. Uh, at, at the base level, it's just a, it's a way to really give more credence to making positive choices in your thoughts. Yeah. Um, so it's like... I think you can get away with a lot by using a framework to describe something that is totally, completely unmeasurable. Yeah, and almost obvious, um, but once you put it in, like, really fancy-sounding terms, yeah. all of a sudden it's a philosophy. Um, yeah, I don't... I mean, what, if he helps somebody doing by doing that, then... It, there, he has crazy results. That's actually where I, where I was going with that. They're, they're having spontaneous healing um, happening at the... They do big conferences and stuff. Okay. Um, which, another... Sounds a little bit more like... More and more like a cult. Yeah. But... Um, People are coming in, or like not, some like some revival tent yeah, stuff. Yeah, very much. <laughs> um, which there's something to that because like something about the way we're wired, when we get in groups, we become a different thing. It's like the the individual is subverted, and all of a sudden you're part of a machine. Like it, it there's something there that I I don't really understand, um, but just the way that like the fundamentals of groupthink. How like your rationality disappears? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you start to make concessions that you wouldn't make otherwise. Yeah, it, it changes your chemistry to be in a group, but um, especially when everybody's like experiencing these heightened emotions and they're seeing yeah. these amazing things happen, or they think they are, or whatever, whether they are or not. Um, it's yeah, I don't know, but the the healing. Oh yeah, the placebo. That's where I was going. So. This meditation practice also just ties right in because it's you have to choose to believe in something that is a only a possibility. Like you have to make an active choice to believe that it's possible. And if if you don't, and if you're like an extreme skeptic, you're not going to be able to make that choice, and then your future is pretty limited. But um, yeah, we're getting off off the track. <laughs> We were getting down rabbit holes. I, I could talk about that stuff all day. Um, most people hate it. <laughs> I No, I think it's interesting. Like, the, the groupthink aspect is... I don't know. Uh, I'm just going to say this jokingly, but, like, cults exist along a spectrum. Yeah. Like, so, for instance, I mean, you could call something like... So, like, drug support groups or like drug recovery and substance recovery. Mm -hmm. A lot of those support groups rely on realigning people who've kind of gotten um on the on like a bat or like a darker path back to reality or back to yeah. like a n normalcy. And that happens by going to like support groups and sessions and you know having like these mentoring experiences with people who have also gotten through Mm -hmm. uh, substance and addiction issues um, and 
None of that is happening because you're like, you're taking a medication that's alleviating your addiction. Like it's happening through these relationships. Yeah. But I think the core of that is like, what does, what does that group want from you? Like the thing that makes Alcoholics Anonymous, like not a cult is that the only thing that somebody in that group wants from a newcomer is for that person to get sober. Yeah. They want you to be well. Yeah. Yeah. They really like, as opposed to like, um. They don't want something to like Osho. Fuck your wife and take yeah. all your money. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a lot less insidious. Or like yeah. the stakes are diff- very different. Uh huh. But they're kind of playing. There's like those are similar effects. Yeah. You're tricking yourself into. Or like you're, you're. It's a different way of thinking. Like you're yeah. aligning yourself to like a new logical structure, like a new perspective. But yeah. I don't think that it's like. To me, there's like a. It's. It's also beautiful to have a non-mystical explanation for those effects. Oh, it's so great when you can have both because depending on what mood you're in, I, I, I am a completely full on into both of those sides. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. Like I, I can detach enough and engage in double think yeah. to where I, I can see it, at least in a world of possibility, I can see them both being true, even though I know that most likely one of them's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can like live with that ambiguity. Yeah, like yeah. I can, uh, I can, so I have an experience like that. Um, I have a two-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. and um, I was, so before I met my wife, Melissa, mm-hmm. I had been married for three years, mm-hmm. and we had been trying to get pregnant, couldn't do it, mm-hmm. just didn't work, and, you know, most likely that had a lot, I mean, I'm not going to get into the, all the most likely reasons, just couldn't do it, Yeah. and um, I had got into this kind of like, it was through Dispenza's first book, uh, that I read called uh, "You Are the Placebo," and it's just about like the secret, how sure. like setting an intention and you know placing yourself in that state of gratitude, uh, where it, and it feels ridiculous because it's it's you haven't nothing's happened yet, and it you almost have to detach yourself from linear time yeah. to to get it to actually feel not insane. But I sat down and I did these meditations where. I uh, thanked the universe for this little daughter, um, which in, in, in my meditation, it was God. I was talking to God, but I, I, I think of God as the universe. Like, that is the same thing. Um, it's just, like, the system that creates everything. Yeah. The system that presents all of this just, like, molecular soup that we live in mm. and we're, we're part of. Whatever holds all that together... Um, I think it has some form of intelligence. And so I was, I was just like, I think that intelligence, I pictured what it would be like to be a person who had a daughter and who, what those, uh, what those feelings. And that was actually really painful at first. Yeah, sure. Because I had spent years. Yeah, it like highlights the loss or yeah. the absence of it. And at first it was like, it, it hurt. I was like, ah, oh, this, I'm like putting myself in this version of myself that I'm not, I'm not him and I might never be him. And I, and I, it, it was like such a, such a thing I was afraid of happening, not to be able to have a kid yeah. for my whole life. Yeah. I feared that, that it, it was like hard to even think about the positive, um, outcome. But yeah. so I did that and I had to sit there and just be in that space. And it eventually got really comfortable to where I was, it was easy. I was like picturing my daughter, yeah. um, and feeling the feelings that I would feel as a dad and all this stuff. And again, like Stephen just saying this, it sounds so crazy. But um, I, I, 
eventually started to feel like it was real. And yeah. uh, gratitude is like the ultimate state of receivership. Yeah. And your your brain is really open to possibility in that state. So I did these things, did these meditations, didn't really think much of it. Just like, to me, they seem like really long, kind of hard, stressful prayers. And... Um, <laughs> Which I pray, but I don't pray in like uh, directly. Sure. I don't like, dear God, please kill XYZ, my enemies yeah. and make me win the lottery. I don't. I don't do that. But I do. I'm just like God. Can you please make this situation turn out the way it's supposed to turn out? However, yeah. however yeah. that brings about the best result for everybody or whatever. Probably not that altruistic about it, but um, so it was. It felt weird to be like thanking God. It, it, the whole thing felt very uncomfortable. Um, but I w- I'm I'm really open person, yeah. uh, so I like to try stuff even if it's going to be uncomfortable or yeah, if yeah. it seems weird or stupid. Yeah. Because why why the hell not? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, it worked, and uh, I got Melissa pregnant like a week later, <laughs> and now I have that little girl that I pictured. Yeah. Um, and it's the same person. Yeah. Hey guys, I hate to interrupt, but something happened here, and the recording got a little messed up. So we kept talking and kind of ended up started talking about other podcasts, and it's going to pick right up where talking about Joe Rogan. I like he said this one guy, Duncan Trussell, on. I love Duncan Trussell. I love Duncan. Yeah, yeah. I've seen him live a couple times. He's one of my inspirations for this. For sure. Like the Duncan Trussell Family Hour? Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I used to listen to that all the time. Yeah. Um, He is the, the far end of the spectrum where I'm like, okay. I can be weird a little bit because he, yeah. he like makes his own songs and has. Have weird you seen Midnight Gospel? And, yeah. Okay, I love. I, it's my favorite show to yeah. fall asleep to because it's, yes. it's calming. Yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah, I in in um, April, one of my absolute closest friends in the world uh, died very suddenly. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And yeah, it was a not a pleasant time, but um, the day after I got the news. Uh, just kind of like, like in like the boredom of grief, Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to put it, um, just kind of like, well, I can't do anything, so like, what am I going to do with myself for this time? Mm -hmm. And I ended up watching most of, like, I'd already watched it, but I ended up watching most of finishing Midnight Gospel, Mm -hmm. and it really, like, I'm really happy I did that, it was, because it just set this, like, I don't know if it's, it's like set the mood for this like period of grieving Uh because it's so, the like final episodes are just so about He lost his mom. Yeah, 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 that one episode, yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't actually seen this, I only watched the first half of the first season. Um, Yeah. But the, uh, on his podcast he talked about that a lot and somebody else who was a guest was talking about how much that episode affected them. Um, when he was dealing with his mom's death. Yeah. Um, it just sounds like a very... He just seems like such a genuine guy. Yeah. Like, I, I like that he's uh, real. Like, yeah, he's like he's a weirdo, just, and yeah. he's gentle. And he owns it. And yeah, yeah, I yeah. like him a lot. I, I really admire people like that, because it, it's so hard to just be yourself uh, if you're kind of a weirdo. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. It's, it's, it's a trip to see people successful, uh, for doing that exact yeah, thing. Yeah. It's like, okay. So it, there's... They've, like, figured out, like, when to let it out, like, when yeah. to let the brakes off, or... Exactly. Because yeah. if you just let it all out at once, you'll just be a weirdo. A weirdo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what other podcasts do you listen to? Um, what else do I listen to? I listen to... 
a lot of the two categories are uh, non-fiction, tech, and history podcasts, and then the other category is Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> actual oh, you're play into D&D, huh? Yeah. Um, nice. I've never actually played. It seems like a cognitive investment. It is. It yeah. takes a lot of time. It is the, I think, pretty much the nerdiest thing that a person can do, because it's just like an imagina- imagination storytelling game that uh-huh. we all do together, and but also math. I'll be honest, it looks really fun. It is really, it's fun. It's, it's the hard part is like getting people to do it with you who yeah. don't suck. Yeah. Yeah, I bet the 80s were the glory days of that. I, it, no, no, I, right now is the glory days. Really? For sure. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, oh, yeah. It is like having a total renaissance. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I would have thought a lot of the, I don't even know if you'd call it talent, but a lot of the talent would have gone towards video games. Like, There's definitely a crossover. So I don't think they're competing, necessarily. Oh, yeah. It's just a different thing. Yeah, but there's like a ton of podcasts where it's like comedians who are also nerds doing Dungeons and Dragons mm. actual play, and it's very fun. I bet. Um, comedians make great podcast hosts. Yes, their whole... They just talk. The, yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. And they're used to like... Make it, putting narratives, mm-hmm. intru- like making maybe otherwise boring things pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the ones that I listen to the most um, have, like, very little content. Yeah. It's just, like, I spend so much time by myself. Yeah. Uh, driving most of yeah. the time. That yeah. it's it's just nice to have a conversation going on yeah. around me. Yeah, yeah, uh, So, like, uh, Bad Friends is one that I like a lot. It's with um, Andrew Santino and Bobby Lee. Okay. Oh, I know. Bobby Lee from, like, Mad TV. Bobby yeah. Lee? Okay, Bobby yeah. Bobby Lee from Mad TV back then. Um, it's pretty good. And they're just them hanging out. Yeah, for sure. Like, arguing occasionally, talking yeah. about their life. It's nothing special, but for some reason it's just good. Yeah. Or, uh, the Fighter and the Kid was a good one until Brian Callen became a sexual predator. Oh. He uh, became one, or he just, it came out? It came out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be well, he fun to get to a, me. a, okay, he, like a real-time heel turn. <laughs> I'm a pretty forgiving guy. I'm a very forgiving guy. Like, I really think that forgiveness is a crucial component of a happy, well-adjusted person. Oh, yeah. Um, Otherwise, you're just carrying around knives pointed at yourself. Yeah. I couldn't really enjoy his comedy anymore. Yeah. Um, And even if it, like, I don't know if it's true. I wasn't there. Uh, I don't even really know the story. Uh, But I don't, I don't, something about that whole... uh, you just, I can't, I can't condone even, like, questionable behavior. I, I yeah. have worked so hard in my life to not make people feel pressured or uncomfortable about anything remotely, like, sexual, drug-related, anything yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. like, in that area yeah, of, yeah. like, you need to make this decision on your own. Yeah. Um, I've gone out of my way so hard to, like, make sure to not pressure people for things like that, that any time when it, I find out someone I respect is actually kind of like a pushy, yeah, yeah. take advantage of yeah. you type of person. I, I lose all respect for them immediately. That's something that people talked about a lot. Um, like, after Weinstein, um, all all men are scared. Good. Not all of them. But, like, also good. <laughs> yeah. They weren't all scared. I wasn't like, scared. Yeah. I had nothing to be scared of. The the ones who were scared were the ones who thought they got away with some shit. Yeah, yeah. A it's like, back. oops, you're beholden to accountability. Yeah, exactly. Oh, what a what a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, not something that really concerned me too bad. Yeah, but somebody got me too in our in our community. Like, I'm sure probably lots of people. But no, um, um, Mike Swanson. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, and PUD. he got voted out. 
deputy commissioner. Yeah, this past election. Okay. I, I actually couldn't remember if he won or not. It's a small town, so people know each other. It's yeah. really hard to throw somebody under the bus, even when you know they're wrong, when you know you're going to see them at the post office. Yeah. Um, just like... Yeah, it's a different... It's a different beast. Yeah. As opposed to, like, political figures or public figures of any kind. Yeah, definitely. I, w- I was actually quite surprised that he got voted out. Mm. But... I don't know him. Or, I mean, I don't know of him really even at all. Other yeah. than the first time I knew of him was when I read the story about him grabbing that lady. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, well, his his wife was my, all my siblings and I's uh, kindergarten teacher. Oh. And, yeah. Which, again, it's just like everybody knows everybody. Yeah. In those kind of, this... Small towns. Small towns, yeah. Do you think you'll settle down in a small town? No. What What's your plan for... Do you, are you going to live in Germany forever? Where, where are I you don't gonna... know. I am... Um, so, at present, like, uh, I... What's the clock? So, in four and a half years, I can apply for permanent residence. And then, I think, three years after that, I could apply for citizenship. Mm. Um, not... I don't have any plans in any direction, but it's just, like... It's fascinating to me to be, like, whoa, I have this option that I don't think ever crossed my mind mm-hmm. when I was dreaming about my future as a child. Yeah. Like, but Are you the type of person who, rather than making a specific plan that you try to stick to, do you just try to make sure you have options and yeah. just like give yeah, yourself yeah. a broad path path forward? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good way to go. I think I'm very like curiosity driven mm-hmm. and like almost exclusively curiosity driven for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So, there's... That's like, a fun way to live. Yeah, it is. It's also, like... It, it puts you in a lot of trouble sometimes. Yeah. But, um... Especially if you're in relationships with people who are not that way. Because... Yeah. It makes them yeah. very uncomfortable. Definitely. Because you're... It, you seem like... An, an unstable yeah. sometimes. But... Unpredictable. Unpredictable. That is a, unstable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but not to you. Because yeah. that's... You know, your consistency is in the fact that you're inconsistent. Because you're driven by curiosity. Yeah. Like if you're if you understand that from the get go, it's it's a fun way to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's definitely a personality type. Yeah. But um Rain is I know, be, I wonder if it's gonna be picked up. It will. Yeah, okay. Um I did one the other day with my friend Jeff and it was raining in the background and it actually sounded okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't bad. Yeah. You can tell we're in a crab shed. Crab <laughs> but, shed. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. Yeah. But um I don't know. I, uh, I'm driven by, like, I really like what I'm doing right now. I have a very cool research project. Do you want to teach eventually? I would like to. Yeah. Yeah. At, like, if, the university level? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, I want to keep being in research, um, cause that's so far as I can tell a career option that maximizes and rewards, maximally rewards curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think curiosity with like certain constraints can be a very beautiful thing. Yeah. And I think the academia provides that in a really nice way. Sometimes. Yeah. It do, it's, it can be, I mean, it gets caught up with its own management and like self perpetuation, but that's uh-huh. also, I think like any, any big system. Yeah. Any human endeavors, you gotta keep the gears moving. Yeah, yeah. I see that a lot in the government. Um, yeah. Carry forward with funding and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, once you get this system built, 
Yeah. Uh, even if it's just meant to solve a problem that is yeah, yeah. temporary, yeah. the system wants to keep perpetuating itself. For sure. Like yeah. the, oh, the military industrial complex yeah. is a great example of that. There's a, there's a, um, this was in relation to so like software and programming, but I heard this quote recently that, uh, I love, uh, nothing lasts longer than a temporary solution. I don't really get it. Uh, maybe think about, like, if, if you have something that you slap on to get the machine going, mm -hmm. then you start investing a lot of effort in making that patch continue to work when the thing that you maybe should have done in the beginning was sit down and really solve Spill the problem. Right. Yeah, do it right. And then consolidate your effort there at the very start, yeah. which is a hard thing to do when you just want to, like, get the machine going. That's a great um, analogy for my day today. Like, sure, so, uh, yeah. My computer didn't work this morning because I was using a, an old computer that yeah. was barely working anyway. Yeah. Uh, every step of the way of setting up this podcast, I was just like, I got to do it as cheap as possible. Sure. Because you want to really, build out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if I would have invested the right amount of time and money and energy into the right things to begin yeah, with, yeah. it would have saved me time and money and yeah. energy, but I didn't know what those things were because yeah, exactly. it's, yeah, it's yeah. all brand new. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, part of that learning process is messy, um, but when you know that the real solution is in front of you, it just takes a little bit more upfront investment. That's yeah. still definitely the way to go. Yeah, but like having an idea or picture of what that solution looks like is also requires so much skill yeah it's not totally not trivial but yeah yeah um yeah i totally i that felt like it was embedded in a larger train of thought but i think i lost I remember. it i think we were just kind of bouncing around yeah um well let's get a little more personal what about uh your romantic life are you uh dating you're gonna plan on getting married at all or gonna have kids someday what what are you what are your intentions um I live right now with my partner in Cologne uh and we are we met because I moved in with them so they're non-binary so mm -hmm. they use they them pronouns okay and uh we were like kind of it's an extremely cute story, and I think it's, like, an extremely cliched story. Like, we moved in, and we immediately had crushes on each other, mm -hmm. but we didn't... It's just us living together. Oh, so um, you're roommates first. We're roommates first, yeah. Oh, okay. And then um, I, we both... We immediately started spending much more time with each other than any normal pair of roommates mm -hmm. would. Uh, or not normal, like, than a standard roommate situation would. And then... I think we just started, like, having this slow-boil romance. Um, oh, that sounds that, great. Yeah, it was awesome. It just, like, we just got to know each other super slowly over the course of a few months. Mm -hmm. And, like, this was all through COVID also, so, which I think it's been a COVID cliche that you end up, like, if you're, not, I mean, not living with your, like, yeah. married or partner, that you end up, like, hooking up with your roommate, but that's, like, just what happened. And yeah. Then it's definitely... Uh, yeah, it, who, it can break on both. Yeah, it really yeah, tested, like, tested relationships. Yeah. And, yeah, but it sounds like this one worked out pretty good. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of nuances to it where I'm realizing that there's, my idea of, like, what was healthy in a relationship was pretty, is a bit busted mm -hmm. beforehand. Like, the way that my partner and I 
handle communication is totally different than, or um, handle conflict is like totally different than I have in the past. I think both for both of us. How do you how do you do with conflict resolution? Are you good at it or bad? I think very good at it, <laughs> which I normally psychologists would... usually are. Like yeah. you know you know how people tick. Yeah. Although I'm not a psychologist, but... but... You're still a psychologist. You you understand how people think. Like, you're a, a psychologist plus. Yeah. yeah. I would actually... I would argue against that. I know a lot of people who study the same thing, and I have very uh, non-typical conflict styles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah but also, there's true. a lot of ego and, uh, like... Scientists can be kind of an uh, eclectic bunch. Definitely. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's not a bad thing. But, um... But that's what I got out of my psychology education was um, I know how I can resolve conflicts pretty well. Yeah. Uh, but then, then you come up against people who don't uh, understand the same things about conflict resolution. and Or they just have a different relationship to communication. Or even to their own problems. Like they, yeah. some people want to be in those problems. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even if they don't realize it because there are, there are ways to stop yeah. those cycles. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, people don't always want to hear that yeah but um, oh it was such a revelation at some point to re- like that I re- to realize like um, that win-win scenarios are something are an achievement <laughs> like that yeah. it's, it's not it, the best thing that can happen is not just me getting my way all the way yeah. but that, that's almost never best there's you pay yeah. for that later yeah 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 it's also not good for me or like the person also yeah, like, what, either yeah. like some kind of a king or queen you're like yeah, yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. get your way all the time yeah it's humility is really good for just understanding the self yeah and realizing that you're very small in the whole big picture yeah, yeah. um so is your partner from germany yeah yeah they're german um they grew up in a town near cologne um and yeah i don't know i i'm kind of at a point right now where uh I, nothing in my life could change for 15 years and i would be pretty happy about that oh that's a great like place I, to be. If, if i can just kind of like keep on this trajectory. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm pretty good. Yeah. That's a really good place to be. Yeah. There's not been that many times in my life when I felt like that. I always feel like I'm growing or moving, uh, transitioning out of some stage and into yeah. another. I, yeah, I don't mean to imply that I'm like, I want to stagnate here or anything. No, I don't. Just that's like, not what I took from I take from it that you're in a place where you can build something. Yeah, that's how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So how's it been hanging out with your siblings uh, over the holidays and being back in America and with your parents? And, um, it's um, been good. This is the first time that I've been home for Christmas in about five years. Oh, wow. And it's the first time that all my siblings and I have been in the same time zone for Christmas in over a decade. So Jeez. it's definitely... How old is the oldest out of your family? What's the spread? So the oldest is 13 years older than me, then it goes 11, and then 9. So not a huge difference, but... Between them, they've, they're like a, they're all within a couple of years of each other, and then I'm mm-hmm. about a decade behind. Okay. Yeah. Do you, are you pretty close with your siblings? Do you guys talk when you're not around? A bit, yeah. It's I'm getting closer now. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm I've aged out of a lot of bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I think. Oh, were you a bit of a troublemaker? I think I was just kind of a dick. <laughs> you said that <laughs> earlier, and I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> Um, when you were talking about the school and oh, how, yeah, how you, were, think, you may have been an asshole at your school. It might not have, but 
That requires context. I was not a yeah. bully. I was no, just I, yeah. very opinionated you made it about sound like my you, education. Like you were um, an asshole to the administration. Yeah, I would kids. not. Have, yeah, I would not yeah. have wanted to be my teacher. Oh yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you about. It's not really one thing. It's many things. One thing. Uh, one topic that includes many aspects is AI. Um, yeah. How how closely do you work with with AIs? Uh, like the people. Behind it, like uh, engineers and computer scientists and all that, how uh, with computational neuroscience, are you guys closely related to AI stuff? Or, or um, it depends it, on what you mean when you say AI. So, I'm talking about like uh, the systems that, like machine learning. Oh, um, uh, that's bread and butter of like my project. That's what I thought. Yeah. So how does that all tie in to human brains? Um, there's a few different things. So the main, uh, so maybe to simplify the question of just how does, like... You use neural networks? Is that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of like, so like, but then neural networks also. So neural networks are kind of like, that's what artificial intelligence is to a certain extent. There's different kinds, but we usually, when people are talking about the really like headline, sexy artificial topics... Artificial intelligence topics, the kind of technology that is in play is some form of neural network, which is like which is a subcategory of machine learning, and but it's kind of like the Venn diagram. It's like not all machine learning is maybe what people would think of when they think of artificial intelligence, and not all artificial intelligence it is seems, machine learning. It seems like most people think of uh, when they hear AI, they just automatically think of like automate uh, auto, AGI. Um, what is it? General intelligence. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, like, like a Skynet. Like a Terminator scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Where does the AI come into neuroscience? Um, is it like modeling brain patterns? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's kind of two ways that it goes. So if I'm asking the question, like, how do you use machine learning in neuroscience? Like, there's two things. Like, you can use aspects of machine learning as the model for the actual phenomenon of the brain that you're interested in. Or you can use it as a way of doing kind of data mining. Do you think or it's a good model? It depends. It's a good model for some stuff. It's not a. It's not like a universal model, mm -hmm. um, and they're really specific. Like if you're making a model of, so one of the most like successful comparisons between neural networks, and the brain is with visual processing. Uh -huh. So there's these kinds of neural networks that are called convolutional neural networks, and those are the category of networks that do a lot of image recognition. So when you have on, what kind of, do you use an Android or an uh, iPhone? Um, Apple. Okay, so on Apple, is there like a facial recognition function in your yeah. photos? Like when you're going through your photos, does it automatically categorize like, this is Melissa? It does. Okay, yeah. so that is accomplished by, um, probably it's accomplished by a convolutional neural network. So, where, so that's, a, that's like a piece of artificial intelligence so to speak. Um, and the way that convolutional neural networks operate is they take, you give them a ton of data examples. Mm -hmm. Like you give them a ton of pictures that are labeled like, this is a picture of a duck. This is a picture of a cat. This is a picture of a dog. And you just keep throwing examples at it. And the trick is that it knows 
how to decompose those images, and then it knows like how to... Ship? Like battleship? Like by coordinate systems, or what? Kind like... of, yeah, kind of. Um, it's like they pick... you. You can pick apart the pixels mm -hmm. and compare the pixels to each other and, like, the relationships, and... And it builds relationships. Yeah, but the whole the trick is that you as a programmer don't have to tell it how to do any of that. It okay. teaches itself. So it is a pattern finder. Mm -hmm. And there's like kind of these mechanic like these mathematical equations that will or this like mathematical engine that drives the whole thing. But the core principle is that it the convolutional neural network or CNN is finding patterns between those pixels and like the relationship between different parts of the image and is has learned to assign those probabilities of labels. So like this, you feed it a kind of ambiguous image of a cat or a dog, maybe like a chihuahua that has, if you're squinting at it, maybe you, you would think it looked like a cat and uh -huh. it, the output of that might be, this is 50% cat, this is 50% dog because it has, the neural network has learned through all of these examples mm -hmm. um, how to pick out characteristics that match the labels of the things that it's seen. So it has so, identification criteria? As kind of, it, yeah. And the, the, they, they get called a black box a lot of times because you as the programmer or the scientist don't know exactly what those features are or they're not really like human intelligible yeah um but the whole of it is accomplished through layers so like each layer of the neural network will be will be looking for something different some different feature within the image oh, within the stimulus okay. so over time the features in a in a neural network that is like getting trained on um images like to distinguish between different animals as you if you look at like the early layers of the network the features that it's looking at might be really simple like just like contrast or lines or um uh different color values within mm -hmm. the pixels and then as you go further and further it's kind of like stacking up those new features to something that might be more complex oh so, so it's you separating might, into categories and then building on top of that yeah and then kind of the the, the non-linearly combines between those things and so um the back layers are of a neural network like if you're sampling those and like looking at what what features is it picking out from the images, um, like you might start seeing stuff that like, oh, that really looks like a car wheel, or like this layer is um, really gets its highest activation mm -hmm. when there is uh, like an eyeball present or something. So you can see like, oh, it's using this feature to give a label to this image. Yeah. Um, so why is it so hard for a robot to tell what, which image has a car in it? Or which one has a street light or stop sign? Are you talking about like the CAPTCHAs? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> those robot tests. Um, it's more like a... Uh, those are trying to trick a really specific kind of So you can, program. you can design an AI to easily... That's a really those. simple problem to solve. Okay. But the thing is that they're catching with those is like the web crawler or the kind of um, 
program that is going to run into those captchas is not going to... It's just gonna, meant to enter text, right? Yeah, or it's meant to, like, figure out on a screen where to click or something. Mm, okay. Um, that makes sense. So it's more like, it's like a really, that's a really trivial problem for mm-hmm. um, machine learning to solve. Like, if you think about it, like, that's the most basic thing that you would have to solve with yeah. autonomous driving. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. So it's like, that's a pretty easy, but it's just more, they're just taking advantage of the fact that, like, somebody who's programming a web crawler is probably yeah not going to devote a bunch of time to also developing a... Uh, classification algorithm. They're assuming that your Tesla is not going to steal your identity and get on the computer. Yeah. Because if it did, it could definitely solve that. It could probably solve that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's one... So the... um, The reason that it was... Went into that tangent was because those neural... The way that those features progressed through the convolutional neural network, so like where the earlier layers seem... Like, the earlier features in the network that the, it seems like it's picking up on are, like, these really simple contrasts or, like, line detectors, and then kind of gets builds off of that and becomes mm-hmm. more complicated. That seems to be, that is how the mammalian, like, visual processing goes in the brain. So you have the visual information, the physical visual information coming into the retina, then it goes through, like, a couple relay channels or, like, relay hubs, um, and there's some early processing that's happening there. And then it enters into the visual cortex. I'm pointing right now to, like, the base Your of my brain. lobe. Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of radi- it like moves up and in to the cortical layers. Um, and the way that it progresses, um, the, neur- so like the neurons here, I'm, I'm, I should describe it. So the neurons in, like, the early part of the visual processing stream and right now I'm pointing, like, behind my earlobes-ish, mm-hmm. um, those areas, those neurons are highly active to really simple features. So, like, if you're... A lot of this research was done in cats, their early stuff. So if you show, like, a cat a, um, a bar, just a, like, flat uh, bar, mm-hmm. like, just a black... Like black or horizontal. Yeah, yeah, like a horizontal bar. Um, if you find, like, the exact neuron that's, like, tuned to that in the brain, and you just pull that over the cat's visual field, um, it's... A neuron down there would be highly responsive, where it's, like, ner- neurons in, like, later stages or not. But as you go up, you start getting neurons that seem like they're really tuned to more complex stimuli. Better at abstraction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're starting to like build on those earlier visual features and abstracting up and starting to get to something where you might call it like this is a concept. Like this is like like building up to so conceptual describing information. Bottom up processing, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to top down, which would be like you, the thought comes first, and you're thinking about something, and like, like modulating your breath based off of your thoughts. thoughts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the neural networks are are a pretty good model for how we understand visual information. Yeah, and there's some evidence that like you can really you can get pretty good predictive power, um, meaning. If, we're, if the neural network is a model for what we think neurons are doing, then can we design experiments that 
will take information that we learned from the neural network and make sense of something within the biological network. And there does seem to be pretty good evidence that neural networks are, or that the, that certain areas of the brain are kind of doing what we think neural networks are doing. Mm-hmm. And so that's a situation in which the neural network itself is a model for the brain or like very specific networks within the brain. Um, and then on the other side, uh, Neural networks and machine learning is a, in general is just like a super, super useful tool mm-hmm. um, for doing, for automating tasks. Like, like building databases? And yeah, building databases or like sorting through a bunch of like really data that's like really boring to hand off to a person and mm-hmm. ask them to process. So there's that's like the less sexy application of it, I guess, from the headline perspective, but... It's it seems super like useful. things so. like reading brain scans where yeah. there's like um, a whole bunch of information and we're not even completely sure if all of what all of it means. Like a computer seems like they'd be really good at that because it's yeah. just like the same yeah. coordinate grid, yeah. like uh, with one slice. Yeah, exactly, means. exactly. That's a totally that was my what I was thinking of in terms of an example where you have like a cube of tissue that you want to label and you want to go through the whole cube slice by slice. And mm-hmm. you want to track, like, where an axon yeah. is projecting to from, like, the beginning to the end. That's an application that um, is perfect for, like, a machine learning algorithm to work on. Because it's easy to track. And it's... Or it, it is track. You can phrase the problem in a really highly um, specific way. Which means, if you can do that, then that means it's something that you can apply a machine learning algorithm to. Because you can... It's trainable? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, which kind of uh, goes into the intuition aspect of like being a human. Yeah, where it's just like it really the stuff does. that make, that is easy for us to communicate is are things that we can describe really well. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, so how how far are we from being in a place where a computer is going to be able to draw conclusions that are more accurate than humans? Well, we're there in certain contexts. Like, there's medical con- there's medical mm-hmm. contexts where computers are like as accurate at diagnostics than as humans are oh like x-ray techs yeah Yeah. but i mean it's also like those are algorithms that were built by humans so yeah it's what what i'm really asking is like so let's say we uh, quantum computing becomes widespread and Mm -hmm. we we suddenly have like our computing power is exponentially increased yeah um i think that what's going to happen is we're going to have all this backlog data that from the entire existence of the internet and everything people are tracking nowadays like on everywhere we go is tracked everything you do in is tracked yeah yeah um if you just piled all that into a, a quantum computer that had been trained to find certain patterns we, it, we we might learn things about our our whole history that we saw one way um that was actually completely wrong like um yeah that seems I mean, I'm trying to come up with a good example that would terrify everybody, um, but I can't come up with one. The, just like uh, things like, oh, we thought it was this, but it turns out, based on all this evidence, <laughs> yeah. it, um, we actually just saw it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, know. germ theory yeah, there, there's is a good something example. like that. It like, could there's be so many examples. Like yeah, yeah, where. It was actually just uh, dark spirits all along, yeah. no germs at all. Things like that. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, um, just the amount of people who are going to realize they were wrong when um, 
we have that kind of computational power. I still feel like we're in the infancy of what we can process. Oh, speaking oh, yeah. of processing, computing power, you uh, have any interest in cryptocurrencies or, or blockchain? Uh, I have a pet interest in, like, the history of cryptography in general Ooh. and, like, the development of, like, encryption methods, but I don't know anything. I actually don't know anything about that. Okay, I you don't know anything about, about I know I, I, the Bitcoin stuff I've been into lately. Um, okay, word. And cryptocurrencies in general and blockchain technology um, just because it seems really cool and promising and it, it corrects a lot of the problems that I see with um, traditional computing okay. like, like uh, centralization uh, it decentralizes everything how so? because it's, it's everything's ran through a bunch of individual systems uh, that are all updated simultaneously um, so it's like uh, the way a bank works right now like the bank holds the, the piece of paper that says like who owes what? And yeah. the, the bank is the only one who has that piece of paper. And if so anyone it's like else... like akin to like an encryption key or something? or Yeah. Okay. Um, so if anyone else has a piece of paper that says something different on it, they listen to the bank. Okay. Not, but with blockchain, everybody gets that piece of paper and it updates at the same time across the board. And well, who updates it? Or is it set to like a, this is a solvable differential yeah. equation that's really difficult to solve. So yes, like if you have like a that. certain amount of computing power, you reach the same solution at the same time or? That sounds more complicated than I'm, than I know. Okay. Uh, word. It, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a black box. It, okay. they, it, it goes in and, uh, the block, it goes into the blockchain, which is just, it's a distributed network. It's, it's distributed across the planet. So it's, uh, and it's because it's at, and there's, uh, protocols that force like, uh, what do they call them? Work checks, um, where it proof of work, proof of work algorithms, or something like that. It's um, people who know what they're talking about understand okay. that part of it more than me. I I've read into it enough to be able to trust the designers um, to know like. Aren't okay, the designers just the bank now? It's that's what's kind of worrying me uh, is that institutions like banks and you know, hedge funds are starting to get into Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, which is good because the value of Bitcoin is going way up because the supply is still limited. But yeah. it's also kind of concerning because it, we don't want it to just turn into the same thing over again, like it with the dollar. Uh, yeah. Just have it inflated and inflated and inflated and printed like it's imaginary and never ending. Because, um, like, the scarcity principle is, is what drives value and... We seems like we just kind of gave up on that with the dollar. Um, anyway, do, do you, do you have any computer like programming background? You know how to code? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. What do you do with it? Just you use that in your research, it's, I imagine. Yeah, it's like the you just have to, like it's it's like the language of mm -hmm. most scientific research. I work a lot with like software development for or developing tools for. Um, uh, working with like very specific kinds of experimental setups, mm -hmm. um, like uh, organizing and uh, analyzing data is not a simple problem, and mm -hmm. so a lot of that is made simpler by using um, different kinds of. Uh, Taking like taking advantage of like different aspects of computers and 
the way that that's accomplished is all through programming. Mm, so it's become like a crucial yeah, component. Yeah, I think it's like the most necessary skill. Why don't they teach that in schools? Like I don't think it's caught up. Yeah. Also, I don't think the teachers know how oh, to yeah. do it. <laughs> it seems it, it seems like we're about to go through some major changes in education. I think so. Uh, I mean, for better or worse, I think that like programming is probably the most useful skill that somebody could learn right now, but it also mm-hmm. is uh, like if you're just programming databases or something like it is boring work. Oh yeah. Like it's just another kind of like much higher paying, but like uninteresting work sometimes. Tedium. Yeah. Um, but also like programming is not hard to learn. Like mm-hmm. you could, you could pick up Python really quickly. I, I, I did a couple of the, uh, free online coding classes. Yeah. So I, I learned enough to be able to like make a cube go across the yeah, screen and yeah. balance the thing for yeah. animation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I could see how it, it could be not that difficult. It's just another language. You just got to learn the language. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. then you know how to, you know, yeah. manipulate the concepts. But um, the time it would take for me to learn it right now in my life, I don't think it would be worth... The juice ain't worth the squeeze. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I have too many other things going on to, to be able to de- like dedicate that much time yeah, and energy yeah. to something like that. It's also very application-based. Yeah. So I, I might end up learning, spend six months learning something and never need to use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, it's, it's always been really interesting to me. I, I like that it exists in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is uh, your dad. Yeah. Because he is one of my favorite people. <laughs> and I have known him for a really long time now. Yeah. And it, it's weird, too, because he's talked about you the entire time I've known him. Yeah. And when it started, you were a kid. Uh-huh. And Wait, how long have you known him? I've, I met him in 2006. Okay. Um, yeah. So the first... Yeah, 2006. Okay. 2007. 2007. Okay. I was 18. Okay. Um, so I uh, got a job at the Wildlife Refuge. My yeah. sister was working there already. Yeah. And she had talked about Ed for two years. Yeah. Uh, because he started there a couple years before I did. And um, he just seemed like a, ca- a character. Yeah, like, yeah, definitely. Uh, full of life and just like... Um, yeah, so when I started the job, like, I, w- I was put on his backpack crew. Yeah. And uh, it, he lived up to his reputation. And he's he's just, like, such a real person. Yeah. That is, he's been a really, really, had a humongous positive impact on my life. Yeah. Um, oh. And it's been really cool to sit down with you today and talk to you because I, I think of Ed as a role model. For sure, uh, yeah. As a, as a parent, primarily because I really think he figured out how to do it right and like he'll I, I try to give him credit for this and he likes to, to downplay it and um, talk about how yeah oh yeah make I make lots of mistakes but and I'm sure everybody does but um, something about the the way he gets this little twinkle in his eye when he talks about his kids and uh, <laughs> I can just tell he would do fucking anything for you guys like uh, and it, and it seems like he really has tried. Um, it's that's the kind of dad I want to be. Yeah. Um, just like giving everything you got. Yeah, yeah. And I really, I really admire him for that. The just like just the fact alone that he's got you guys all. I mean, I know you are the ones who had to do it, but you had 
parents who facilitated you, you all going to just amazing schools. Yeah, it's... Like, yeah. you were all prepared, and then you succeeded from those places. It's not like you went there and floundered. Yeah. You all, you all went out and made something of yourself in the world. It's, it's pretty impressive. And um, what, what is it, like, what do I not know about your dad that, that, that <laughs> needs to be said on this podcast? Like, what... <laughs> What does the world need to know about yeah. Ed Dircher? <laughs> what is what makes him tick? What is it that drives? How does he keep going? I mean, he's he's not a spring chicken, and he's still yeah. acting like he's my age. I know like, he's like almost seventy five now, and uh, I very much his principle is like, if he doesn't slow down, he'll never slow down. Like if he doesn't, mm-hmm. yeah, that uh, does seem to be the case. Yeah, which it, it works if until you're falling. It it, it, yeah, 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 <laughs> and it, it's working for him. Um, yeah. I'm very, I'm very happy that I have his genetic makeup because it seems like I'm gonna be kicking until I'm 75. I think so. <laughs> like, yeah. Is he veg- full on vegetarian? He's a pescatarian. Pescatarian. Yeah, but he didn't used to be. It wasn't until so I was working at Blue Scorcher as a baker, starting around 16, and then oh yeah, your kinda, mom was talking about that. Yeah, and then took kind of like a hippie turn, and like I was like a vegan for a few years, and. Uh, that meant, as I was still, I was like still a teenager, so that meant that I was doing all my own cooking, and he used to be like total meat and potatoes, mm-hmm. um, kind of eater, and then uh, I started like bringing home very nice bread, and like started picking up new new produce, and like introducing new flavors into the house, and then I think from some point on. He seems to really he, like it. Yeah, he, I think it's working for him. Yeah, he talks uh, about that. Like, he yeah. says he feels good yeah. eating that stuff. Yeah. He's, very, he's like, very evidence-driven in his own life. Like, it doesn't... Yeah. He, he needs to see it to believe it. Um, I That's true. Also, in, like, uh, if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of... He's yeah. very much like that, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. if it's working, let it work. Yeah. Like, don't yeah, mess yeah. with it. Yeah. 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 Um... I think we were having that with our water heater at the moment. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He was like, this is as good as this is going to get, and I'm just it's just going to stay like that now. I imagine there's been some extra load on the old water heater since you guys have so many people in the house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, so he's like, I'm not going to even touch this until, like, yeah. a totally boring example of that, but, yeah. Were your parents always the way they are now? They seem to get along really well. They yeah, s- like, they're always a unit. Like, they've always been, like, a united front. Oh, that's that's good. Yeah. Seems like you guys have a steady foundation yeah, to grow it's, from. I didn't realize until like I got out in the world how special it is that I only knew one house growing up. Mm-hmm. Like I still they it's it's still standing, that's still where they live. It is, that is special. It is. And it's always been like an open door policy mm-hmm. at home and it's it's always been someplace that I know, I've always known that I could go back to, like, it's been, um, I don't know how to put it, like, an anchor point, um, kind of living, like, for me living out in other countries, or Mm -hmm. being, getting up to trouble elsewhere, like, knowing that, kind of the back of my head that there's, like, there is a place. Yeah. Uh, maybe I do not want to live there in Nice, like in a yeah. town of four hundred people. But with yeah, but there is like there is a place that is ex- that will be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you don't see yourself ever coming back to live 
I don't. Th- I don't think that like the kind of life I want to live is possible here. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe well, like which, nearby which places. Kind? Like a very like science. Yeah. Driven life. Like there's not a big research institute within two hours of here. Not for There's neuroscience. Not for neuro. Yeah, you yeah. If I were doing marine biology or cranberry <laughs> studies, yeah. yeah, this would be a great. I think place there's to an live. opening actually at the cranberry research place. Kim <laughs> <laughs> uh, Patton retired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, this place has has got some limitations. It does. I think it's still, like that's a very interesting place, and it like mm-hmm. there's new blood here all the time, and there's people coming here. Yeah. But it's. It feels pretty slow. Yeah. I've, I've struggled with that a lot. Sure. Um, yeah. Being being here at, after college and everything, but I think I'm finally over it. Yeah. Um, this, it's just this is a really good chapter in my life. Sure. I've, yeah, my yeah. kids are um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and my yeah, wife yeah. is awesome. Yeah. My I I just really like my my life. So yeah, it's yeah. it's easy to be comfortable, but. Um, when things aren't going so well, it's so much easier to see the flaws in your home, Definitely. like in yeah. where you are. Yeah. Like I remember as a teenager, just wanting to get out of here so bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not even really knowing why, just yeah. like having yeah. that need to leave. Yeah, it's like um, this is the only solution to this problem I yeah. can envision. But you don't really know where that solution even came from. You're just yeah. like, this is gonna work. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's it's really important to get out and see the world while you can. Like Yeah, I think it, so. You never know when you're gonna get the opportunity again. Because you like especially if you really are living your life the way you say where you're you're just leaving your path open and trying to provide lots of opportunities, you might end up somewhere really good that happens to be kind of a you know, hold you down. Uh yeah. hold, hold you in place yeah. more. Yeah. Um, or like a velvet cage. Yeah. I'm, and it's I I'm careful saying that because I don't want to make it sound like that's what I'm in now because I'm I'm very happy with where I'm at, um, but it does it does happen. You end up the, it's just you only get so many days, minutes, hours on this planet. Yeah. And you you got to choose how you spend them. Definitely. Yeah. 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 I think like the older that I get, I. Um, so for one, like the the avenues that I have available to me come from having had, like, the support system of my parents mm-hmm. that enabled me to, like, take advantage of education opportunities, and... Uh, was education a big topic of conversation in your house oh, growing yeah. up? Oh, yeah. There was, like, no option to not go to college, mm-hmm. um, and there... It was, like, you... Like, grades were the only thing that mattered, also, um, and it was, like, very, we were raised to be, like, super competitive also, mm-hmm. for better or worse. You were a swimmer, right? Yeah. Yeah, do, yeah. Do you ever still keep up with any swimming or sports of any kind? Uh, I run, I climb a lot. Oh. Do other stuff, but I don't swim anymore. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's weird, like, I'm out of shape now with it, and it used to be, like, a very high competitive level, and now it just bums me the fuck out to get into oh. a pool, and to not be as fast as I remember being. It's yeah. really, it's I totally know that feeling. Yeah. Do you have that with, like, rowing or other oh, similar stuff? Yeah. Rowing always kind of was hard. <laughs> it's like, it's it's just not... It's a brutal sport. It is. It's I, I don't want to make people think it sounds... I mean, it's miserable. Yeah. It's really not fun. Yeah. Um, there are parts of it that come with it that make it worth it. Like yeah. Like, the fact that you bond with these people in oh, the yeah. boat. Oh, yeah. Like, so... It's like 
had a military feel to me. Yeah. Kind of. It, it does from almost. Completely from the outside, but. Yeah. Um, it's, something about it is just really rewarding. Mm-hmm. And part of it is that misery. Yeah. The fact that you all chose to get up at four in the morning and go out on this frozen lake and. Yeah. Splash around. Yeah. Like, it, it was a choice. And we all made it together, and now, like, you're in it. Yeah. But, and then you come away from that as a stronger person. Um, and I, I've been able to recognize that. Uh, the difficulties, bright, like, breeds growth uh, forever. Yeah. And so, uh, like, I like those situations. But the, uh, what were we talking about? I lost my train of thought. Competitiveness? Competitiveness, yeah. The, no, as far as going back to um, working out. Yeah. For some, doing something you were really good at and, and not yeah. and being fine still pro- I'm sure you're still a good swimmer um, if me and you were to go out and race right now I bet you'd beat me probably <laughs> definitely uh, <laughs> for sure I can barely swim I used to cheat on the swim test at crew how do you cheat on a swim test the dock was chained to the ground yeah. um, and, I, and I knew where the chains were and I would stand on them so that I wouldn't drown because I can't swim very well that's a high risk such a sport you've chosen. Well, I plan on staying in the boat. <laughs> sure. So, yeah. Um, and actually, I all but once did. We we got swamped one time. Uh, yeah. And I ended up in the water. But other than that, fine. But I actually love being on the water and yeah. in, in boats. That's why I don't really think I need to know how to swim. Yeah. I'll just stay in the boat. Yeah, yeah. I can swim a little bit. <laughs> but it's yeah. not my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Um, uh, I was. Uh, we were talking about your dad. So, are there people in your life um, who you look to? Like your dad is somebody who I look to as uh, as somebody who like he did it his way and, yeah. and it worked out well for him. Like, yeah. He li- he's living the life he wants to be living. Yeah. For, I mean, for what I from what I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I I see him. I'm like I I want to do that. Like I I don't want his life, but I want to be I want to be in the place he is where I feel like. This was what I was supposed to do. Yeah, I did it, and now I'm doing this. Like, yeah. Do you do you have people who you look to um, as kind of a role models in your life, or are you blazing a new path? Yeah. Um. No, there's role models that I have in my life. I think I'm gonna uh, set up a question in such a way that I I think I'm gonna have to neg- admit that those people are like not my parents. No, but, it's okay. I'm yeah. I'm, talk- I'm saying other than your parents. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well. Um. Yeah, there are. There's uh, even just like smaller, in smaller ways. Like your dad is the kind of dad I want to be. Yeah. he's my dad role model. The and there's there's just other people. Uh, Kim Patton, who we mentioned earlier, he just retired last yeah, year. Yeah. He he is like a professional role model of mine because he uh, has high standards. Yeah. Like he uh, he used to piss people off in the Spartina world because he would go back over and check our work. Yeah. And then tell on us if it wasn't good. Yeah. And uh, he did it to me once, and I was like, well, I thought we were buddies. Yeah. And then I realized, nah, he's a scientist. Yeah. What's more important is the data. Yeah, and, uh, or getting he, the job done. Your emotions uh, aren't important because the numbers are, are what's important. Yeah. Um, and I admire that. Yeah. So I, like, I try to, to, that's a part of me now. Yeah. Like, I try to be able to be objective and, and look at data and, and tease apart the parts that matter. And um, I have, like, a long list of these people who I, I look to in my life to kind of shape who I am by taking a little bit here and a little bit there. Yeah. What, what have you taken from people as throughout your 
growth that you really like has meant something to you? Um, I think I had a lot of uh, mentors early on in neuroscience that gave me, or like my academic career that gave me um, like a very concrete and very non-sugar-coated insight into like what it is like to actually live as a person in this kind of field. I think earlier than that also, uh, I mentioned earlier working at the Blue Scorcher and I think they're in conjunction with a lot of lessons that I learned from my parents also of, like you mentioned it, kind of like doing it your own way um, uh, and kind of figuring it out as you go. Like at the Blue Scorcher, I, um, I started there when I was 16, just working the front counter and then got it in my head at some point that I wanted to be a baker and then kind of made a deal with the owners of the bakery, Joe and Iris, that, hey, if I start showing up for the early shifts at like 2 or 3 a.m., will you just teach me how to bake? And they're like, sure. And so within about six months, I was working as like a full-time baker, just showing up and doing it. And just be, I don't know. Now I look back at that and like, I was also like, partying during that time like I was also there's some days during the summer I would stay up until like midnight mm-hmm. like goofing off with skateboard buddies and then show up at a 2 a.m. bread shift which is something that I think a person can only do when they're 17. Yeah but, that sounds rough. Yeah. Um, but also awesome. That it, sounds kind of awesome. I look back and I'm just like my goals were really weird. Um, you wanted to make bread. I just wanted to make bread and there's something about having like this craft work that was so cool to me. Yeah. Um, like, something to, like, have, like, a trade under my belt was something that I wanted so badly that uh, I would just show up. And I met a ton of people through that because I was... Most of the other people who were working there were, like, like retired. There was, like, a retired cop who worked as a homicide detective in Phoenix, Arizona, who had nutso stories. I bet. Um... And there were people who had been, like, in, like, on, like, satellites of, like, Olympia's punk rock scene that I, like, worshipped at that time. And the, I mean, Joe, the guy who runs it, is, like, an MIT graduate. Oh, wow. And just kind of went into, just did his own thing. You ever listen to Lex Friedman's podcast? No. He's at MIT, uh professor in for in ai i think okay word um but it's really good you yeah check it out it's just called the lex friedman cool. show I I'll think. Look into it. yeah but yeah but i think from that place that was like just really shaped my values in the world also and then going into research science um so it sounds like you have kind of a natural work ethic that's a little bit harder than most people i think so i think it's i've got a lot of like if I don't put in what I consider to be, like, a good day's work, even on off days, um, my mood takes a real turn for the worse, which yeah. is definitely something I got from my dad. I was also, just, just going to say For that. sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, if the work isn't hard enough, um, your dad will start to get bummed out. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. He, he really thrives like with something to do. You need something to push up against resistance. To, yeah. Just to like, or like a 
a project or like a, mm-hmm. a task or something to accomplish. I think that balance of having just the right amount of resistance in your life is is really good. Yeah, like, yeah. If you don't have enough, you feel aimless and yeah. pointless. And if you have too much, you're overwhelmed. And yeah. You just got to hit that sweet spot. Yeah. Well, we're getting on a few hours here. I think we should probably wrap it up. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, this it's been really, really fun. fun. Totally. And uh, I hope the audio turns out all right. Me and, too. Um, I hope you come back another time. Yeah, I would love to. This was really fun. Yeah, I look again. forward to hearing it we'll, put cool. together. We'll see how it, how it goes. Cool. Anyway, bye everybody. I'm still fly, I know. I'm still fly, I'm still fly, let's go. Be a hater like you. It could all be worse. to make the man, but that poison's gonna kill you. Can't nobody